All right, welcome back to the NAB podcast. I'm Eli Kramer. I'm with my co-host. James Anderson. And today we are talking with uh, Professor Ronald Barnett, who's Emeritus Professor of Higher Education at University College London's Institute of Education, where he was pro-director and dean. Uh, he's also past chair of the Society for Research into Higher Education. Um, and he is the current inaugural president of the Philosophy and Theory of Higher Education Society. He's been one of the most prolific leaders in the field of philosophy of higher education and higher education reform, advocating an ecological model that sees universities neither as uh, centers for thought or for economic driven action, but as ecological spaces within culture that centers all of its activities and reforms and reconstructs culture for the better. With that, uh, I will let us go to the interview, which uh, provides some exciting and dynamic discussions in the philosophy of higher education itself. So we're here on the NAB podcast. Uh, thank you, uh, Professor Barnett, for joining us today. We're really excited to have you. Well, it's very good to be here, and uh, I look forward to the discussion. Um, I'll try and uh, do my best to uh, respond to your thoughts and questions. Uh, you've already kindly given me an inkling of the kinds of topics we might touch on, and uh, they're certainly very extensive and uh, might keep us going for some time. But let's uh, do what we can in the time we have. Agreed. And as you know, you you hinted at us. We we didn't throw some softballs. We definitely like to go big here and just see where that takes us. Speaking of that. Uh, to start off, we wanted to touch on a recent blog post of yours, BC and AC and higher education, where you discuss the BC before Corona and AC after Corona world, and offered a glimpse of your vision of the AC university and its opportunities. Can you further flesh, uh, flesh out for us how you see higher education in the UK and globally transforming and the necessity for a more interconnected university that, quote, will need explicitly to identify and to demonstrate the public goods that it is providing to the world, end quote. Well, there's a lot there in the question. Um, I'm just going to start off with an anecdote, if I can. Um, uh, as you probably know, um, I'm the president of the Philosophy and Theory in Higher Education Society, uh, which is a great honour for me. Uh, the society having recently been formed. It's already tremendously active and recently it held an international webinar. But the webinar was not a conventional webinar, at least to my way of thinking. It was really a mini conference um, all packed into two or three hours. It had plenary speakers. It had uh, the chair orchestrating the whole event. Um, it had breakout groups, it had a discussant, and I for my sins was the discussant, and uh, it, it finished off with the chair making a few uh, final remarks. And uh, there was opportunity for everybody also to uh, have a go at the issues that were coming up. The issue happened to be about um, the, the activist university. What is it for a university to be active? In the modern world um, but that's not the point I wanted to make. I, I, I was particularly struck with just how versatile uh, the new interactive technologies were. 
I hadn't realized just how easy it was, at least for me, who's technologically uh, challenged, just how easy it was in principle uh, to uh, form a, a complex meeting like that with all of those elements in it, with people involved in it from all over the world. As I say, we had breakout groups. It was, it was even easier than if we were physically at a conference. Uh, it all worked incredibly smoothly. And the participants, there were 40 or 50 of them, perhaps even more, came from literally pretty well most many regions of the world. Now, if we can do all that, as it were, sitting in our armchairs, it gives an inkling of what is available uh, to the university these days. So I think there are real opportunities there uh, that we really do need to explore. Now, I'm rather old fashioned, you might say. I still believe in the university as a place. I think uh, a physical space that the university occupies is very important for all manner of reasons, which we can uh, perhaps touch on. And I think that whole notion of the university as place has yet fully to be explored. But nevertheless, uh, I want to just at the moment, just uh, reflect uh, briefly on this, as it were, interactive dimension that's opening up with uh, modern technologies. And I also reflect that um, this um, crisis that we're facing at the moment I suspect has brought institutions and organizations into conversation with each other in a way uh, that they haven't experienced before. I suspect, for example, that the medical profession and the political sphere is now engaging uh, with each other at a distance, interactively online, uh, in a way that's completely new to, the, to that set of relationships. So I think there are new opportunities opening up for the university now to engage with the wider society. Um, I'm very struck with um, what I've seen of Michael Sandel. Don't, I imagine that you know of Michael Sandel because he's a Harvard professor. Um, and as well as being a foremost authority in his own right as a political philosopher, he's developed um, an extraordinary pedagogical technique of engaging with people, and they're typically students, but they don't have to be, from all over the world at one time. Typically, he, he can be in a studio and he's surrounded by a bank of 40 to 60 screens and on each screen there is a, a head and shoulders of a student could be anywhere in the world and he poses awkward questions uh, to this group of students and he gets them engaging with each other for example over um, the value and, and justification of abortion or whatever it might be some controversial quite difficult issue in, in life and as I say he gets these students engaged with difficult uh, problems and he will pitch them as it were gently 
very diplomatic way um, against each other. So he will have John ringing in, uh, uh, viewing in from Singapore, and he will turn to Ellie in Massachusetts and he'll say, well, what, what do you think of John's uh, comment? And, and he'll get them pressing up against each other and he'll get different views pressing up against each other. This to me is an extraordinary example of uh, the university now, not only reaching out into the public sphere, but actually helping to form the public sphere. So I really do think that there are extraordinary opportunities opening up for the university now. Um, and the present crisis has, as it were, brought all of this on, I think, in great leaps and bounds, uh, universities in particular. Um, they've probably been more adept at using modern technologies than many other institutions in society. But I suspect that this crisis is now galvanising them to uh, think about their possibilities in new ways. Um, I was uh, taking part in an online uh, committee meeting um, yesterday at a university where I'm a member of one of its committees. And they were reflecting that they'd had to hold uh, seminars recently online, saying how well they'd gone. And they were also saying, uh, at least one department was saying, that it intends in the future, obviously when they, hopefully the university resumes in its place to continue to, uh, as before to hold uh, seminars in the seminar rooms in the university, but from now on with a Zoom type link so that others can pitch in uh, from outside the university as well. So I think this crisis is going to challenge us to think of new possibilities of reaching out into the world, engaging with the world, and of being more interactive with the world. And that will itself, I think, help to give others in the wider world, hopefully, a, a more heightened appreciation of uh, the, the resources um, uh, that, the, that universities can bring to bear in widening public debate, in widening the public sphere, in enhancing the level of understanding of big issues and so on and so forth. I was wondering if you could touch on how you see particularly this kind of digital uh, transformation and opportunity and sense of place, uh, if there's any particular aspects that you think are unique to the uh, contours of the UK. Uh, part of the reason I ask this is many people in our audience are in the midst of the US crisis in higher education, which has a lot to do with half private institutions in different states with different kinds of funding apparatuses. So it's just, I thought it'd be interesting and informed to think if there is something you think unique happening to uh, the particular contours in which you work. I don't know that there is, to be honest. Um, the UK loves to regard itself as exceptional. And we have this phrase for commentators on social, political and public life about the exceptionalism of the UK. Uh, and to some extent, that's true in that we seem to always be a bit behind the curve uh, on uh, many issues. Um, but uh, I think um, 
higher education is facing global issues, global problems, uh, global challenges um, right across the world. Of course, it takes on different nuances in different places. Um, in the UK, as uh, many of your um, uh, listeners, uh, viewers in, uh, in America will know, uh, and in other parts of the world, we're engaged at the moment in a conversation, let's put it no stronger than that, with uh, the European Union. We've been a member of the European Union for some decades and we're seeking to leave the European Union. And in fact, the decision to leave has already been made and we're working out the conditions and shape of the contract, um, the conditions under which we will leave. Um, and uh, that that is testimony, I think, to the way in which um, the UK, perhaps since the Second World War, has never been quite settled in how it sees itself, whether we see ourselves as part of Europe, um, whether we see ourselves as a close friend of the United States, or, or we see ourselves as somehow able quotes to go it alone in the world and this uh, is going to have profound again profound impacts of various kind I think on uh, on the UK in um, in research for example the UK has fared better than any other European country in gaining research monies from the European Union and so uh, those research monies are liable to uh, be dwindling if not coming to an end. So there are going to be major issues about how we relate uh, to the European Union. Of course we've also benefited enormously um, from an influx of students from the European Union. But as I say many of the issues are global, um, an issue facing many universities uh, around the world. America and in in Europe is uh, international the movement of international students in general, especially but not only those uh, from China, um, and it remains to be seen what's going to happen on that front. Um, I think there must be grave doubts as to whether or not the flows of students we've seen from some countries into uh, the universities of the West are going to return, um, I suspect they they will not. And that's going to pose universities with, with some uh, difficulties and challenges. It's not just on the, on the financial side. The uh, international students have been enormously helpful in helping univer universities to become genuinely global institutions. It's not understood publicly that uh, many of our great universities recruit students from over a hundred countries. So each major university can be, as it were, a microcosm of the United Nations all at once. Uh, and this, I think, is profoundly valuable to universities as spaces of uh, of interaction and uh, and debate uh, and. Uh, of learning uh, from each other and gaining from each other from cultures and countries across the world. So I think um, the UK is 
is going to be faced with particular challenges as i say in working out its relationship with the european union but also with countries around the world all of that is quite unsettled uh, and on top of that we have the challenges that uh, i are opening up to universities again around the world in the wake of the uh, coronavirus. I don't know whether I've come even remotely close to answering your question, but do come back at me if you there was elements there in the question that you feel I haven't really addressed. Ron, I'm going to go ahead and, and jump in. I think you addressed the question well and provided a nice segue into some of the other questions that we wanted to ask. And I thought it kind of interesting that you mentioned British exceptionalism, because as you probably know, American exceptionalism is, has a pretty uh, firm stronghold in the United States as well. And you mentioned the you know British exit from the European Union, popularly known as Brexit. Uh, and the American dissident uh, Noam Chomsky had feared that might uh, make Britain into even more of a junior partner to the United States. Uh, you know, subordinating Britain even further to U.S. hegemony, a hegemony that nevertheless is, you know, most people agree on uh, it's in decline. Um, but never, but that being the case, American exceptionalism, like I said, still has this strong ideological foothold and can assume some kind of disconcerting forms. I'm thinking about, you know, certain types of nationalism. And in the blog piece that you wrote, you'd speculated that universities that have hitherto been enacted as these international spaces will shrink and become more national. So I wondered if you could explain in a little more detail what it might look like for universities to become more national and how that might differ from say efforts to make universities more public or more social or more communal or more local. Well, these are uh, um, really big questions and I can't pretend that I've worked them through in my mind. Uh, to any uh, great depth, but I am conscious that it seems to me, and indeed the coronavirus um, has again emphasised, I think, trends that were already evident um, of um, a greater nationalism uh, developing around the world. Many commentators are, are, are thinking that, suggesting that in uh, globalisation uh, it is going to uh, dissipate to some extent. I'm I'm not sure that I entirely agree with that. Or if it does, it I think it'll be limited. I think we are now in an interconnected world, and perhaps we can come on to that uh, point later. But uh, I think uh, we've got this um, developing nationalism around the world. Uh, as we see with um, more right-wing governments um, advancing and defending national interests. And you, we're seeing a retreat from um, more international fora. Um, the, the United Nations has come into, uh, into difficulty and... Uh, the, more recently the World Health Organization too and there there does seem to be um, at least in some places uh, a greater interest in 
defending one's own patch, so to speak. Now, what it, to what extent these movements, if they're real, are going to have impact upon higher education and universities? Um, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, uh, as I say, I think um, we can begin to see uh, that there could be difficulties, challenges in terms of diminution of flows of students around the world. Um, and it, it may be that um, on the research side, universities are going to find it more difficult to um, secure uh, research monies which come from international sources. Um, but it may be more that also that uh, universities can be encouraged by by their host um, governments to attend much more to more local and regional i e national interests um, i mean universities again this isn 't quite always I think understood, but universities at least the great research universities are extraordinary organizations because their governments uh, view them as their organizations, their institutions, but that's not, not how those universities see themselves. They see themselves as global. They see themselves in global networks, engaging uh, with global issues and problems. Uh, they situate themselves in a global space. And so you've got a tension there between, um, or could have a tension between governments who want these institutions with extraordinary resources um, to turn their attention much more to national uh, interests, national problems, um, and the universities themselves, who may be much more outward looking um, I don't know whether you come across the phrase grand challenges, but some universities use this phrase around the world um, to try to encourage their own staff to latch on to big global issues. Um, and that's, again, testimony to the outward facing orientation of many universities. So I think there, uh, there, can, there are going to be difficulties on the way if universities are going to be encouraged to be uh, more national in their uh, in their orientations which is not at all to say um, that um, I'm looking uh, for universities to disregard national interests or even more local interests on the contrary there are also moves at foot to try to resurrect what used to be known as the civic university um, it was a phrase we had in in the UK um, even back in the would you believe the 19th century um, uh, as some of the new universities were starting in the late 19th century beginning of the 20th century um, they were seen as civic universities the pride of their regions uh, with a with a with a remit to address um, or to help build up their regions. And we're seeing uh, some of that spirit now returning. And I think that's all to the good because, or can be all to the good, because in that way, um, universities can help uh, uh, 
share their resources, put their resources to good use in their regions uh, and think through much more what they can offer their regions. Again, it's not always known that some universities are the biggest employer in their, in their locality. Mm-hmm. Um, they are huge institutions locally and regionally. Um, and it's become, I think it's become more apparent over the last 20 years or more that um, they are a huge, as it were, economic engine. But I think what we have yet to uh, understand are the possibilities and resources that uh, universities have in helping to build up the social and cultural life of their regions as well. That's certainly coming along, but there's much more to be done on that front, I'm quite clear. So, as it were, uh, going national um, can play out in different ways. It can reduce horizons, but it can also, in a way, expand horizons. Um, and uh, we we need to just uh, see how uh, that uh, goes. Uh, I'm uh, a believer in that one can have one's cake and eat it, uh, to use a, a Boris Johnson expression. Um, I I think we've universities just have to be good universities uh, you have to be both global and local uh, and there shouldn't be uh, a, a conflict between the two at the, at the margins in the detail of course there is tension for individual members of staff individual programs of study um, uh, there is tension but in terms of the total um, disposition uh, of the total resources of a university. It should well be within the wit of uh, management teams to uh, address much more local and uh, uh, issues as well as global issues. Certainly in the UK there has developed, we began to see the beginnings of of a movement towards universities working concretely with local authorities, local organisations, non-governmental organisations locally and regionally uh, to see how they and indeed their students uh, can help um, uh, ventures uh, to get off the ground. You know students can be drawn much more into uh, some of these local projects with that kind of activity being being built in where practicable into their programs of study. Ron, it's interesting that you mentioned many universities as being the biggest employer in the area in which they reside. I teach at the University of California, Riverside, in the Media and Cultural Studies department there, when I can get classes. And the UC is the largest employer in California, which is kind of saying something, right? Because California itself, as as a state within the United States, has... Uh, I think the fifth largest economy in the world. Yeah. At least that's that's the the figure that they like to throw around. At any yeah. rate, uh, yeah. but, but you said a couple things there that I wanted to to touch on. I wondered if you could share your thoughts on what students and staff and scholars at university can do to stem the tide of the kind of hypernationalism that can reduce horizons, to borrow your phrasing, and what they can do to help preserve 
those global networks that you mentioned and to resurrect the sort of civic university that you've discussed to try to expand those horizons? That is, how do we keep our cake and eat it too and maybe enlarge the cake? Well, again, I don't know that I can do much more than pick up on some of the points I've already made. Um, students are incredibly resourceful. Um, we sometimes forget, I think, just how intelligent and how motivated, how energised students can be if we set things up uh, correctly. Um, unfortunately, our pedagogies tend to, again, to limit their horizons and diminish this, their sense of themselves. Um, but I am persuaded that um, uh, students are basically intelligent and uh, and well motivated and uh, and given the right kind of pedagogical space which is a concept I'm very keen on um, can can do extraordinary things um, if we set things up correctly if we inspire students if we give them space to believe in themselves they will take off um, and be energized in their own right they will set up almost irrespective of what we do and i've seen it in my own teaching and elsewhere they will set up their own study groups for themselves outside of the classroom they will engage with each other and again the new newer technologies enable them to do that um, so uh, the, there's in principle there's no difficulty about energizing students and you see them getting involved in uh, activities i've actually done research uh, empirical research took my philosopher's hat off and put on social scientist's hat um uh, and and actually did empirical research on what students do in their spare time as it were quotes um, and it is quite extraordinary and I think we know very little about that life-wide learning to use a phrase that's come into the literature which again is another concept I'm very keen on the sense that students not only learn through through their lives when they leave university become graduates and go into the world of work they don't just learn sequentially through their lifespan, i.e. lifelong learning, but they also learn simultaneously in all kinds of learning spaces, um, even while they're at university. Um, and it, it is quite extraordinary what um, students typically can be found to be doing. They can be um, participating, obviously, in things like sports clubs, or they might be members of a choir, or they might be playing their own musical instrument or they could be helping out a local family with a dyslexic child uh, they they could be helping uh, elderly people with gardening it is quite extraordinary the array of things that students are doing they could even be taking their own uh, additional certificated courses on the side they could be learning uh, modern uh, languages they 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 could be uh, in one case i remember taking a course in first aid um, and so on and so forth so students are probably doing all manner of things even alongside their uh, university uh, course so this is testimony to the 
not only the energy and the learning interests and the inquisitiveness that students have, but it's also testimony very often to their being exemplary citizens. They already are engaged in the community, doing all manner of things for the community and learning uh, in that way from all of those uh, very often um, complex positions of responsibility that they are placed in. So you put all this together, you have an ex extremely uh, uh, bright, energized people engaged in society, caring about society, think about how students are involved in ecological movements these days. Um, and uh, let's be honest, they're very often engaged in political movements. So students have already an outward orientation about them. Uh, and what we have to do is to, as it were, capitalise on all of that in our higher education. Unfortunately, our pedagogies do the reverse. So I remember, for example, interviewing uh, a young man who was taking a music course at his university. And he told me that he'd set up a little group uh, of other um, students uh, in which they would get together and not just play instruments, but they would compose together. They were sharing each other's musical compositions. And he explained to me that they were doing that together of their own volition because there wasn't the space or the opportunity to do that in his course. There were few learning opportunities of that kind in his programme of study. They had to invent them for themselves outside. So, as I say, you put all of this together, you put the extraordinary computer and interactive skills together, and you have amazing resources in our universities. And it's up to the wit of universities and their teachers um, uh, to, uh, to help um, bring all of that together and see how it might be uh, sustained and energised further. Um, and that could be brought into play in the kind of community projects that I was just beginning uh, to touch upon. There's also, by the way, a role here for university libraries. And they, we never talk about university libraries on these sorts of occasions where we're talking grandly about the role of the university. But the university library now, I think, can begin to be brought into these grand imaginings of what universities can be in the 21st century, reaching out into the world, helping the university to forge connections with the world, particularly the local community. Um, it's going to be more difficult in a, in a totally interactive age, but hopefully we will get through this crisis and universities will be able to resume their place as learning places and in that case libraries can be brought into um, connecting with the wider uh, community and become a portal in which the wider community comes into the university. Uh, I've got a few thoughts about that but that's probably a bit um, left field uh, from, from where 
we we were uh, a few moments ago. But anyway, all I want, all I'm saying here is that there are uh, all sorts of possibilities. I think um, for universities to stretch themselves out into uh, the wider community in ways uh, that we've barely begun to think about. There are pockets. There are. Uh, uh, around uh, in many places of the world, in many regions of the world, where this sort of thinking is going on, but it tends to be ad hoc. Um, sometimes it's helped by the local culture. I think one sees this, with, for example, in continental Europe, where there's more of a public spirit than there is in, in some other countries. And you see this fluidity between universities and and the, the locality. You see um, organisations, libraries, uh, public libraries, for example, being, as it were, interspaces between universities and and the local uh, community. So I think there is quite a lot of this going on, but it tends to be under the radar. It tends to be hidden. Um, because it's all rather ad hoc and fragmented. You know, what you're talking about here uh, speaks to something I found in a lot of your writing about this kind of, this uh, usual way we think of universities as separate from culture and we have to find some sort of bridge rather than as a space of culture. And even when you're speaking about students and the library, you already hinted at some of the language you've used before, but it's a kind of ecology that ought to be cultivated and thought about. And so in particular, um, in a number of publications, including a monograph entitled The Ecological University, A Feasible Utopia, um, you have proposed an ecological model of the university that supports seven ecosystems, knowledge, social institutions, persons, the economy, learning, culture, and the natural environment. And uh, that takes an interest itself as a space of culture. For those unfamiliar, can you elaborate on your model on the prospects for it in the current, uh, the current changing higher education landscape? And in particular, kind of building on the comments you were talking about, but the kind of implicit possibilities in universities that are really maybe at the heart of its mission or what its mission ought to be in the first place. Well, thank you for the question. Um, uh, of course, uh, no author can miss an opportunity to uh, expound uh, the ideas of one of their recent books um, but at its heart um, the, the the essence of that book is quite simple it is to remind us that the university um, lives in an inter interconnected world but I think I, in that book I take this idea of interconnectivity um, a little further than perhaps it's sometimes taken. Um, I'm very struck by some of the uh, philosophical texts I've been reading over recent years in what's being called the new realisms. But this, to me, points up how every entity in the world is connected with other entities. And these connections are horizontal and they're vertical. If I can just go back in our, in our conversation and just um, uh, remind us about um, the, uh, 
the, 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 the virus, the coronavirus. And we just think uh, for a moment about how that is moving in the world and how it is affecting the world and the interconnections it throws up. It simply, as it were, calls to our attention what we knew was already there, interconnections between animals, interconnections between animals and humans, interconnections between our thought processes and what is happening in the world, interconnections with all kinds of human activities and and the organic and inorganic worlds, um, and interconnections at all sorts of levels in the world, globally, nationally, locally, as we've talked about. Uh, interconnections between the viruses of the world and the world itself. I mean, these are extraordinary interconnections, and they're going all the time, and they're all in motion all of the time. And the university is an institution which is, as it were, in the midst of all of these connections all the time. And it needs, therefore, if it's going to realise its possibilities to be alert to the way in which uh, it is straddling, whether it likes it or not, uh, uh, these different, as I call them, ecosystems. And I've identified seven big ecosystems and you were kind enough to mention them. One of the points of my identifying those seven ecosystems in that way is to say, uh, yes, um, the economy is is real, and so is the natural environment. Uh, and those ecologies, as it were, um, ecosystems, we hear about all the time. They're being imposed upon us, um, as it were, uh, we're being reminded of them, but the university circulates and has its mo movements in the midst of all sorts of other major ecosystems as well. And the ones I identified, the ones you read out, were not necessarily uh, the only ones. But the point there is to say that the university is is connected with the world in all sorts of ways. In it all at once and any university is moving across these ecosystems all at once and each university will have its own pattern its own profile across these different universities i'm connected with two universities in london one it's world famous it's a huge university university college london top 20 university in the world i'm also connected with a smaller university a newer university in the suburbs of London, which many people will not have heard of, St Mary's University in Twickenham. Why do I say that? Because on my argument, both of those universities are moving across these different ecosystems in different ways, but each one manifestly has a profoundly different, as it were, echo profile across those ecosystems. Its possibilities to move and to engage with those different ecosystems are different and we talked about you know reaching out into the local community but when you're reaching out 
into the local community, you're reaching out into the economy, you're reaching out into culture, you're reaching out into knowledge systems, you're reaching out into institutions, you're reaching out into persons and how they understand themselves, you're reaching out into the natural environment. And different universities will be able to do those things in different ways. They will have a different, as well, footfall or footprint across those different ecosystems. So they have different uh, possibilities. And for me, therefore, once one takes that set of realizations on board, the challenge comes as to how universities are going to disport themselves in this ecological situation as I call it. Are they going to seriously address their possibilities across these different ecosystems? And this will play out differently even within a university. So what's possible for an engineering faculty will be different from what's possible from the faculty of law or the faculty of modern languages. Each one will have its different possibilities and they have to be thought through. And that isn't easy at all. For anybody who's trying to draw up um, a university corporate plan and think about the possibilities for a university into the future, this is extremely tough. These opportunities, responsibilities, possibilities are not simply lying there to be read off. They have to be imagined. They have to be discerned. They have to be thought through in a very careful way. And then one has to be adept and on one's feet because... As I say, all of these ecosystems are in motion. The university is in motion. It's in motion upon motion. And so one has to be nimble on one's feet as one's looking at how opportunities are playing out and new possibilities are arising and new challenges are arising. Here we are suddenly faced with this coronavirus. Nobody would have known it was coming a year ago. And here we are faced with it. So what new opportunities does it present? What new challenges does it present? They have to be worked through. So that's really the basic idea, but perhaps I just might touch on the title of the book, which you kindly enough uh, quoted, The Ecological University, A Feasible Utopia. But just been talking about the first part of that title, The Ecological University, but what about A Feasible Utopia? Well, hope that it will be recognized or sensed that I'm utopian in my thinking. I'm trying to, as it were, glimpse possible utopias, but I'm not interested in, as it were, building castles in the sand or castles in the air. Is a better metaphor, castles in the air, um, that cannot be reached. I want to... I, form utopias and I want universities to form utopias for themselves that can be reached and that's why I've been saying as I've been talking look these are possibilities but they're not crazy possibilities because if we look carefully enough we can actually see examples of this or that or the other going on in different universities in different places in different countries around the world in South Africa in Australia, in Canada, or wherever it might be, in the way, for example, universities are reaching out into their indigenous uh, communities, and so on and so forth. So there's a lot of 
as it were, imaginative thinking going on. And I'm just trying to encourage universities to do even more of this and see themselves in a more interconnected way. But I'm trying to form, therefore, feasible utopias. Anybody can come up with utopias, but the challenge is to come up with feasible utopias, which could just be brought off in the best of all possible worlds. Ron, I wanted to to go back to the blog piece that we had referenced earlier and try to tie that into some of the themes that you've just recently brought up. In that blog piece, you suggested that universities could do much more justice to the theme of internationalization, for example, by explicitly bringing students together, even in their distant locations, and requiring them to engage with each other in virtual settings, not least in confronting difficult worldly issues. And I think you provided an example of uh, a professor who's doing just that already, but I wondered if, if you could describe how you envision internationalization uh, in addition to that, especially as it pertains to the ecological university and feasible, feasible utopias, and why, in your view, internationalization uh, is a theme that we ought to do more justice to, and what we can do creatively to foster a kind of international or transnational pedagogy and ecological university that still venerates you know, local community and participatory decision-making at the local level. Well, thank you. One can't necessarily do everything all at once in a single act, but let me just um, offer you another okay. example, um, which um, uh, is, is just beginning to be seen. Um, uh, at least I've, I think I've read about one example of this kind. Imagine you're running a civil engineering course. Um, now, imagine uh, with the modern interactive technologies uh, that we're talking about, imagine you're at a, at a university in the global north, as it's popularly being called these days, um, and you link up with a university quotes in the global south with another civil engineering course and you get the students talking to each other you not only get them engaged on joint projects of a technical kind within the field of civil engineering but you also get them reflecting say on what it is to be a civil engineer in that particular society how is that seen? What are the responsibilities of the civil engineer? To whom is the civil engineer accountable? And what kinds of considerations come into the role of the civil engineer? Now you imagine all of the educational possibilities that there are. Once you start to have classes from quite different cultures working together, um, across continents in that way. Wouldn't that be exciting and wonderful to get students engaging with each other? In that one, as it were, pedagogical space, you'd have the university stretching across many of those ecosystems that I was talking about, stretching across learning, across culture, um, across knowledge, different kinds of knowledge systems would be coming into play um, and so on and so forth. To me that will be enormously challenging and exciting. It will be also an open space in which 
the students who've been not only learning from each other, but learning through each other. There will be an openness about such pedagogies and pedagogical spaces uh, inevitably. Uh, the, 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 even if, as it were, some of the questions have been drawn up in advance, certainly the, the, the way the conversation might flow uh, could not be anticipated. And so there would be bound to be considerable openness about uh, such uh, a pedagogical space. Students would be challenging tacitly without realising they would be challenging each other and getting them to think about their own presuppositions about how to go about solving technical problems. To what degree, for example, one would be taking account of the the interests of local communities. Imagine you're designing a bridge or a dam in some part of the world. I imagine that there will be different uh, considerations coming into view as to the extent you would take into account the views of a local community who might be damaged or influenced uh, by um, the civil engineering uh, project. And it would be fascinating, wouldn't it, to get students from different cultures working through these sorts of issues together. And all of that can happen now with modern uh, technologies. So I think there's a great deal still to play for. Um, uh, and this is quite feasible these days uh, with modern technologies. So this would be a way of getting at universities getting teachers to think about their own roles in a bigger way that to be much more expansive about the their their sense of themselves as educators in a in a in a global interconnected world um, and if it can be done as it were on a global scale then it can be done surely on a um, more local scale. I'm just imagining, thinking off the top of my head, not having thought about this before. But again, given what's happening now with the coronavirus, and um, given the way people are talking to each other, neighbours are talking to neighbours in the way they've never done before, we can build on this. We can get the students engaging with local communities, both physically and interactively, uh, through uh, through uh, digital uh, means, getting in touch with non-governmental organisations, cultural organisations, uh, learning about them and seeing what part they might be able to play. So I think there's a great deal to play for. It reminded me your image a little of like uh, global resources and skills and opportunities and, uh, you know, applied with sensitivity to global contexts and needs. Uh, is that a uh, nice line from Dewey about experts that, you know, of course, when you have a shoe that's damaged, you want to go to a shoemaker to help you fix it, but only you know where the shoe, shoe pitches, which was his point about actually being sensitive to local context and building on those, even with this kind of expertise in these broader ecological systems. Uh, speaking of this kind of images you've been offering the kind of round off our talk today, um, you know, you've been, you've, we've moved across politics, what we might kind of think of the knowledge production of the university, its social role, even what we might consider its role as part of its kind of 
metaphysics or ontology, its place within the broader reality as its own kind of ecological system. So I think in some ways that does show what philosophy of higher education can do. However, given that you currently are the head of PASS, which you mentioned earlier, the, uh, the philosophy and theory of higher education society and the inaugural one, um, and have been one of the leaders in formalizing the philosophy of higher education subfield, I wanted to address the need and role of the subfield today. What is the philosophy of higher education? Why is the philosophy of higher education necessary? And what is the task before us in the field today? Well, I come directly to that, but I ought to just correct you. I'm not by any means the, the head of the philosophy and theory in the higher education society, um, uh, but, but it merely it's uh, president, which just means I have my feet up on my desk. Um, uh, the chair is Soren Bengtsson, who's in Denmark, and he's leading it with great gusto and imagination and, and vigour. Um, uh, but anyway, that, that said, um, I, I'm, I'm honoured to be the first president um, of the uh, society, um, because, I've, as you say, I've been playing a part in trying to develop the field. And if I can immodestly say so, um, my first book came out in 1990, The Idea of Higher Education. And I saw that then, uh, very immodestly even then, um, as, as it were uh, an attempt to launch the field of the philosophy of higher education. I used the phrase, the philosophy of higher education in that book, but I did it carefully I did it um, rather nervously because it seemed to me at that time it was rather a pompous phrase the philosophy of higher education perhaps some still see it as rather a pompous phrase but anyway certainly then it had really no public traction um, and one was trying to I was trying to put it into um, the, the public domain as it were um, to try to get it going and really I've been uh, trying really for 40 years to push this particular boat uh, forward. And why have I invested, dare I say, my much of my waking life in this effort and enterprise? Because uh, I see universities and higher education, I distinguish those two concepts, by the way, but they overlap. I see universities and higher education as profoundly important in the world but what I would say is that um, they're falling short of their possibilities um, and it's therefore a, a task of the philosophy of higher education to identify possibilities. Now philosophers work essentially through concepts and so it's the task of a philosophy of higher education to eke out new concepts or interpretations of existing concepts that are going to help universities and higher education move forward into the 21st century in such a way that it re they realize their possibilities. You may have sensed from what I've been saying that my, my belief is that while they are extraordinary institutions and they are doing very much of good that's in the world, they are underselling themselves and underachieving and that there's much more that can be done and there's much more that as in a way has to be done. Their responsibilities are multiplying all the time as the world becomes 
a more difficult place in so many ways. And I think the world is going to want its universities to do even more in the coming years. It won't. The, you, the world, if I can put it crudely in this way, is going to wake up and realise that its universities are not just economic engines, but are a huge, are, um, as it were, huge um, aircraft hangers of great resources that can help the world in all manner of ways. Well, the university's got to get there uh, pretty sharpish uh, uh, in advance of what the world may bring to its door um, and start to think some of these things through itself. And that's what I've been trying to do. So I see philosophy of higher education not as an arcane, quotes, academic pursuit, but very much as a practical pursuit, something, uh, uh, an academic um, practice, if you like, that's going to help those at the sharp end uh, help to think through some of what they're doing and wrestling with on a day-to-day -day basis. I've been very privileged to be able to meet with uh, some rectors and vice-chancellors over the years around the world, and uh, it's been very stimulating to me and heartening to me to know that at least one or two of them have come across my work. But more than that, it's important that um, the philosophy of our education is so crafts, crafts its work and, and takes on, if I can put it grandly to use Heideggerian word, uh, comports itself in the world, uh, that it's, it's, it's writing, it's text, it's the way it talks, the way it reaches out to the world is going to uh, uh, resonate uh, with, with others in the world. Uh, I see the philosophy of higher education therefore as a profoundly practical uh, endeavor and I've all my life tried to uh, see my work as the crafting of practical principles and ideas that are actually going to help uh, move forward um, thinking and ideas and practices actually in on the ground so to speak within universities and within higher education so I'm not interested in simply writing for the sake of it producing uh, another arcane uh, helping to produce another arcane um, academic field uh, that in which people just talk to themselves and write papers which are only understood by those in the know, um, unless the philosophy of higher education can reach out to wider communities and help to establish wider audiences, then it, it will uh, it will miss a trick and miss uh, and fall short of its own possibilities. So just as I'm saying, universities have bigger and bigger responsibilities that are coming their way. So I think um, the philosophy and theory of higher education society also has large challenges, but it also has with its energies and its vigour and its imagination also has considerable uh, possibilities um, in, in front of it that I'm sure it's going to be able to realise. Well, I want to thank you, Professor Barnett, for helping us practice our own academic practice in philosophy of higher education. 
I should also mention that uh, PAFS certainly welcomes new members, also as an associated journal. Uh, so if you're interested in uh, learning more, please feel free to reach out to me or uh, Dr. Uh, Professor Barnett through his own public website and we can get you connected up with it and the important work that it's doing. Uh, thank you again for joining us. And that was Professor Ronald Barnett uh, from uh, University College London. Uh, there was a number of threads that really struck me in that discussion. I think the particular is I, I, I'm very much myself drawn to the ecological model of the university uh, as both a, not just as a heuristic, the kind of frame what universities do and ought to do, but also as a kind of uh, way to think about, how do I say this, the kind of overlayered super complex systems that make higher education what it is instead of just saying it's one thing right it's like a environment that's developed over time that does lots of things sometimes incoherently but that actually helps balance out the overall systems cultural systems that's the part of um, and so i think one question that it begs is um, how well is our universities doing the kind of variety of eclectic jobs in the environment that it's doing is it doing an okay job uh, is it doing a poor job? Is the whole ecology of culture under threat and higher education's missed some opportunity that it needs to do? Uh, James, do you have thoughts? I've got quite a few actually, so we'll, we'll try to parse this out as best we can, keep it coherent. I liked what Ron mentioned with respect to uh, student involvement and the myriad community projects that many are already involved in. And I think he's absolutely right about that. And sometimes we don't give students enough credit in that regard. And kind of in the same vein, I like that he stressed the significance of libraries, another often overlooked aspect of the university and higher education generally. I, I will note that the union that I'm uh, a member of, the UCAFT, represents both lecturers and librarians. So that's kind of interesting, um, although we have separate uh, contracts. Uh, so what, what kind of struck me about that too is also the, po the possibility of university libraries performing more of a public or social function. I was kind of reminded of, of Aaron Schwartz. I don't know if, if you recall, remember the um, you know, accomplished computer programmer. I think he helped uh, co-found Reddit at one point, but kind of veered away from the Silicon Valley entrepreneurship because he thought a lot of that was kind of gross and was engaged in a lot of social activism. And, you know, he famously ran into to trouble with the law because he had this uh, visiting position of sorts uh, at MIT, I believe. At any rate, he uh, kind of was on MIT campus and was uh, downloading JSTOR articles and mass, and, and nobody knows exactly why. He eventually, like, there was this cat and mouse game that ensued, and and he was caught and was facing potentially a you know a lengthy lengthy jail sentence. And he tragically committed suicide. But what he had been advocating for, and people, this kind of brought the the issue to the fore. Uh, he was very critical of the way that that knowledge is cooped up sometimes within the confines of the university. Uh, specifically within you know, university libraries and their databases, right? uh, which it's a privilege, as, as he would point out, that academics have access to this wide array of knowledge that dates back to the Enlightenment, the peer-reviewed journal articles and the like, which much of the public 
does not, right? So he was kind of an advocate for uh, the uh, uh, making that available to the public much, you know, prior to it becoming, you know, much uh, more popular. And then also now there's some disturbing trends of, uh, you know, uh, journal art, uh, journals asking academics themselves to kind of front some of the the money that's required in order to to make articles open access. Right? And you know, but he was right to criticize that public uh, that publishing racket. And it's super exploitative, right? Because academics and increasingly adjuncts, right, who are not paid to do that work themselves, uh, and if they're teaching at a uh, public college or university, and so it's it's uh, public money that that pays their salary, uh, whether they're an adjunct or a tenure line or tenure track professor. And so there's public money that is at least in some way supporting the research. Although with adjuncts, like I said, there's a lot, of, there's an additional element of free labor that's involved if they're trying to get a tenure track job, right? They have to publish right? and the, those on the tenure track, it's publish or perish. And so they're doing this, you know, essentially for free and the publishers just kind of, you know, take the, the cream off the, the top and uh, keep it enclosed so that this really essential information and a variety of disciplines uh, is is uh, incarcerated and kept from, you know, public access. And, and I think the more that we break down those barriers and allow a kind of, and we have to get maybe creative, but allow the public to, you know, access these things and maybe work with, you know, uh, various uh, teams that are operating at a university involved in, you know, whatever kind of projects they might be involved in. Uh, I think that's going to help, you know, break down some of the unnecessary hierarchies and that, uh, you know, proverbial uh, separation of town and gown for one thing. But anyway, anyway, I, I, I don't want to, you know, monopolize <laughs> the entire uh, outro discussion. So anyway, you share your thoughts and then maybe I'll, I'll comment a little bit more. It, you know, what you said just made me think that uh, it's something we've already talked about, but I think it makes explicit one of the things that hampers a kind of ecological approach to the university is the increasing uh, rarity in which the university is seen as a public good. You know, the more it's been privatized, there was always problems before. It wasn't like there was some golden age where universities were just perfect. But at the very least, there was a sense that universities were some part of the kind of public development that made life better, increased knowledge, made us more, uh, gave us more scientific information, did something that was in, central to the public role. And that allowed it to open up different dimensions of what it did in a community. But now as it's increasingly ever seen as a private good, a commodity, and publishers rapidly have to find a way in which the, for themselves to make a profit as a kind of commodity market themselves, we see a closing of possibilities for what a university can do for, uh, for its broader local and global communities instead of a broadening out. A kind of like hyper town and gown in a way. Even as we try to reach across, we're also trying to sell ourselves to something distinctive. Um, and if you know, higher education can have an opportunity to be social center, some sort of social center for life happening in the community, at least there has to be some sense of it it is a, a central public good the way uh, at least, you know, the postal service ought to be, though that's on their thread in the United States or, you know, a number of other activities. The, it's another public space, in other words, under threat. Even if the physical space of the campus hasn't been public, the idea of the university that was supposed to be central to what it was doing in the United States uh, and uh, globally 
is under threat. Let me just interject really quickly, and I, mean, I agree with all that. One interesting uh, point to be made or point for further discussion is how the university is a public good, as you know, common good can be celebrated and elevated, but at the same time prevent uh, a, let's, how would I put this, a subordinating the university to state interests, which are often, you know, of course, aligned with corporate interests, given, you know, that interconnected state corporate nexus that tends to predominate in present day capitalist society. But, you know, the Ron's notion of the ecological university kind of reminded me of the work of Murray Bookchin and the social, social ecology approach that he helped popularize, uh, which is kind of related to his libertarian municipalism ideas, sort of libertarian socialism of sorts, uh, which has been implemented actually in uh, Rojava, the autonomous region of northeastern Syria, where they've you know, tried to create a kind of democratic confederalist society that kind of mirrors what Bookchin wrote about with respect to libertarian municipalism and social ecology. And his social ecology approach, and there, there's a couple things that could be said about it. There is the, uh, the um, ongoing existing Institute for Social Ecology uh, that works toward envisioning, uh, how do they put it, like a moral economy that moves beyond scarcity and, and hierarchy. Uh, toward a world that reharmonizes human communities with the natural world. And, and Bookchin's philosophy on this is really interesting, right? So what he suggests is that uh, human reason is an expression of nature that's been rendered self-conscious. And so he really rejects uh, the notion and says that it kind of deprecates nature to separate our uh, naturally endowed, evolved human attributes from it. And he goes on to kind of make this uh, ethical argument, right, that we have this as part of nature, right, that part of nature that uh, has become, you know, a, a second nature, right, that the culture and, and uh, social institutions that we've, that we've created, uh, we have this responsibility to, to use these uh, naturally endowed attributes, like our ability to reason and to foresee and to will and to exercise agency and to act insightfully to enhance nature's own development and our own social evolution. And, and I think that should be applied to the university context as well. And before I go on, because there is another thread that I wanted to tie together, would you mind, Eli, sharing that Dewey quote about the shoe again? Oh, sure. I forget where it is. I'll, I'll pull it up for maybe the, the next podcast. But Dewey has this uh, line that, um, like, obviously, when you want your shoe fixed, you go to the shop and have someone who knows how to do it fix it for you. But you're the one who knows where the shoe pinches in the first place. And so he's not able to do it without you. Like yes. the point being, like, yeah, he, right, it goes back right. to Harry's kind of vision of this, like, civic science, right? That actually solution making doesn't just come from experts top down, but kind of power whiz and using different kind of techniques and expertise or what Ron was talking about with, you know, maybe engineering classes from multiple places, working in a particular, with a local context can be, it's a kind of empowered model we might be hoping for. 
Right. And in it, I, there, I had a, an additional layer of interpretation yeah. there, just kind of based on some of the, the Dewey that, that I've read yeah. and the connections that I was drawing. And, you know, I think it kind of, the, I, and maybe a, a point of comparison will help explain best. So w- when you read that or when you shared that, I was thinking about the work of Michael Albert uh, and his participatory economics model. So Albert, he's not an academic, but he he was at one point, he was a, a student, I believe at MIT, and I think in heavily involved in Students for Democratic Society, which again speaks to, you know, the important role that students can play in social and cultural change. And he went on to co-found uh, Znet, which is an alternative media publishing outlet, and uh, at one point was co-operating South End Press as using this kind of participatory economics model. And one of the, the tenets of the model, right, is this richer conception of democracy. It's, I would say it's in line with a, a Dewey conception of democracy that says that, you know, we should have some say in the decisions that affect us roughly in proportion to the degree to which we're affected by them, right? Because who knows better what our preferences are and what affects us or, you know, uh, what, what, which direction we would like to go or, you know, what's going to result in the most flourishing for us as individuals and what kind of tweak we need on our shoe that's messed up, uh, but us, right? The, it, experts might be able to assist with, you know, certain aspects of that when in terms of, say, the fixing of the shoe or the execution of certain things, right? But they don't know, they aren't experts with respect to us. Right? And if we value the individual to the degree that we pretend to in a you know hyper-individualistic society, you'd think that this kind of participatory democracy would be much more commonplace. And I'm especially intrigued, you know, the prospects, and maybe that's too, uh, maybe maybe that word is a little too hyperbolic or optimistic, but I'm intrigued by the idea or the notion that a university could also operate more along this kind of participatory economics, participatory uh, democracy sort of model, which I think, you know, is, goes, you know, hand in hand with what Ron's talking about and with what I mentioned with respect to Murray Bookchin's notion of social ecology. What are your thoughts on, on all that? Sorry, I just tried to bring together a lot of disparate ideas. No, that was nice. And uh, I agree with your analysis of Dewey. I think Dewey thinks of it as both a passive and active comment, both whose foot is pinched is who's involved in the problem. But then the active component too is actually, and this is what civic science folks are big advocators on, that even to solve the problem in the first place, you have to have the person who it's pinching there. Mm -hmm. Else you're not going to get real solutions, in-depth solutions to real problems, right? It will just say service and and not kind of get to the actual ameliorative capacities we uh, want available. In fact, we'll go farther. Dewey doesn't think it's democratic. It, insofar as it is democratic, it's going to be able to get at those deeper problems. That's the reason his whole kind of democratic epistemology is supposed to work, right? The more mm-hmm. we connect with others, see the relationship, the thing, and speak to who actually has the problems, the more we're actually going to be able to address them and all the kind of social cultural problems we find. But now just kind of pushing that to the university level, um, I, there's kind of two points to it. Uh, first, it's just a broader point that, you know, anytime higher learning is intertwined with the kind of seats of power in a culture, I think it's, in, you know, it's to be expected there's some sort of 
unfair arbitrary hierarchies and dangers involved. It's a centralization of power and the kind of organization of knowledge and creativity wing of that. Yeah, you know, Tibetan monasteries before uh, People's Republic of China entered were probably one of the heights of authority in um, government life. And let me tell you, did that kind of mix its other kinds of personal social development and scholastic training aspects. Um, so like, uh, what hope is there for a democratic higher education then? I think part of what Ron does nicely is remind us of all the democratic potential with universities without getting too stuck on the buildings as what makes the place. Like look at mm -hmm. all the activities students do in a university that are mm -hmm. not counted as part of university life. That's part of Ron's point, right? Look at all the things a library does just in its day-to-day -day activity that people don't get kind of typically recognized as part of its, its kind of social value and birth. In fact, right. that potential is unrealized because we're too obsessed with like the, the mission of funding and who's in the classes and who's the chancellor and what's their next project. It kind of misses this much broader ecological landscape in which universities participate. So I think that's even one of Ron's suggestions about where opportunity for change happens, what makes it a feasible utopia is if we don't obsess about those other things and see it as already a diverse ecology, we can mm -hmm. maximize the areas where it's reinforcing a culture, kind of, you know, weaken or challenge areas that are maybe problematic, but not imagine that we have to do it wholesale because universities are such behemoths. Like he's done a lot of, we didn't talk about it today, he's done a lot of work criticizing this idea that universities are one thing. Here's the idea of the university that can be reduced to just one point. Always mm -hmm. a bad idea for something as kind of overlaid as that kind of university habitat is. Right. Now, on the other hand, of course, it doesn't mean we can't be thinking about colleges run this way or, or there, there was a, a push for a kind of a new school model a la Richard Wolf, where uh, graduate students and teachers have a say in government in just the way you're suggesting. Uh, so to be truly duly, and my point is it's not either or. We should both broaden the landscapes of what we think the place of higher education actually is, while recognizing we can, you know, push for some different structures. But if we don't get hung up that we're just going to, you know, the, these physical buildings called a university or a college or what we're after to reform, if we think of it much more broadly about what higher learning is, kind of centered around this broad place, uh, the, the more open-minded we can be about where we can start making those changes. I want to switch gears just slightly before we wrap up, or at least before I provide sure. my final thoughts. And, and I want to not necessarily press you a little bit, but uh, so don't, I hope it doesn't come across as an interrogation, but I, I want to ask, ask a few questions. So first, would Ron consider himself a pragmatist? You're much more familiar with his work than I am. Uh, that's a good question. We should have asked him. Uh, he is influenced by <laughs> pragmatism, but he, he, he draws on a lot of stuff. So I'm not sure right. if he would identify. I don't think he would identify just as a straight pragmatist. He, he draws a lot on critical theory, on kind of modern realism stuff, on some kind of what I would call process philosophy, though I'm not sure he would use that word. So he, he's definitely kind of an original in this angle. Yeah, I, I got that sense too, but I definitely... Uh, could I was I think paying attention to some of the more uh, pragmatic facets of his yeah. philosophy especially to, toward the end right and uh, just on a very you know basic level uh, his kind of rejection of this notion of, of knowledge that is you know separated from divorced from practice 
and, and unconcerned with what's actually going on and, and, and the consequences uh, of you know, exercising agency and uh, efforts to you know, apply knowledge. Uh, and so kind of in relation to that, and you mentioned that, that he's also pretty well versed in critical theory. And something that, that I've been thinking about a little bit is how to, bri uh, how to overcome or address some of the, the tension that I think is inherent uh, when trying to, to broach the pragmatist tradition and the tradition of seminal critical theory. And I'm just thinking about you know, folks like Marcuse and then later Angela Davis, who uh, we should have on the podcast if possible at some point. Uh, and you know, the way that they would frame it uh, in the critical theory vein right, when it comes to uh, production of, of knowledge and the you know, purpose of learning and probably, probably higher learning right, is they would, especially Marcuse, right, would stress the value in abstraction uh, and point to the fact that, you know, especially at the time that he was writing, I think about a book like One Dimensional Man, where he's uh, leveling this criticism against the kind of uh, one-dimensional discourse that keeps us trapped in the present and, and arguing instead for a dialectical approach, right, that doesn't just take the facts for granted, right, but also you know, questions, all right, well, what are the factors that produce the facts historically, and how can we envision these facts otherwise? And what would it take, what would it require in terms of uh, human action, praxis, in order to transform the world and, and change the facts? And the, the purpose of, or what the, the benefit of being able to abstract from the present condition right, allows us to you know, get a lay of the land and also to, to think beyond, right, to kind of transcend the present uh, situation. Uh, if, if only, you know, partly, ideally, but that idealism then, and for lack of a better way of putting it, I don't think that's how Marcuse would frame it, but that idealism, right, that, that knowledge that goes beyond uh, what currently exists can help inform our action to try to change what currently exists into something that, that's much better. And, and so how in, in your mind can we kind of bring together the pragmatic approach and some of those insights of critical theory when it comes to uh, you know, the, that dialectical praxis that, that takes into account the, the history as well as you know, the projecting forward to what could be. Well, first of all, that sure sounds like pragmatism to me of what Dewey means by reconstruction and philosophy. Mm -hmm. And I'm not the only one who thinks that because there is a wealth of people from Jürgen Habermas, Frankfurt School guy, to Roberto right. Frega, and uh, I have another colleague, Justo Zorano Zamora, who also does this work, who thinks there is a strong, uh, not only analogy there, but they both have, same, both traditions have the fundamentally the same commitment. At least mm -hmm. James and Dewey do, yeah. uh, especially Dewey. Uh, purse is a, a kind of another question. So on first level, uh, it's the same thing. So and if you're a pragmatist, you have the same goal in mind. So. Uh, I, I, you know, you wouldn't call it negative dialectics and maybe you don't have, in fact, probably the biggest difference is this hermeneutics of suspicion is not needed the same way. And Dewey has doubts about what, how much effective work that really does. Um, that said, uh, okay, two things. One, good universities are creative centers and culture where the old meets the new. That's something Whitehead says and, and help us kind of uh, reconstruct and find new avenues problem solve and culture that's what Dewey says uh, I think that's higher learning in any process in any culture right 
On the other hand, we have the thing that's you know developed for uh, about a millennium and kind of spread across the globe called the university, which is really a, a, a much, in a sense, a much bigger hodgepodge. In fact, it's such a big hodgepodge of activities from knowledge production to practitioner services, to education, to library resources, to jobs for half of an economy, to where students hang out and have their development rituals into adulthood, where people get adult education. That, you know, it's, I think sometimes it's even unfair to even reduce it to that reconstructive capacity. Mm. Uh, and this is uh, what is the, there was the Robert, no, it's actually not Hutchins, I forgot the name of the person, but there's a famous joke that University of Chicago, the only thing that connects it is the plumbing. And I think some scholars of recent years have been trying to deal with that seriously. But instead of saying there's nothing that connects it, say it's a kind of growing habitat that you shouldn't just try to reduce to one thing without missing all the cool things it could do and all the cool things it could do together. Like maybe your, you know, kind of participatory anarcho-singleist community is a good model for what a university could be if we don't just reduce it to one idea that operates it. Uh, so I think there's another thread of me that says that's valuable too in higher, uh, for the university itself. Higher education, we should promote wherever in Little Dwells it does this reconstructive work. But then maybe it's okay that the university is a messy behemoth and maybe we just kind of prune the sides and push out new opportunities in it where we can. And that's part of its job and culture. Um, I'll leave the, the final thought to that to you though. Uh, I'll kind of throw back that question to you to help us finish up here. Yeah, and I, I don't I don't know if I have too much to add in that regard. I think you did a good job kind of summing it all up and bringing those disparate threads together. Yeah. I, I did want to go back to Marcuse for just a second because something that Ron had mentioned also reminded me of at least my interpretation of some of uh, Marcuse's thought, uh, specifically when it comes to the, the power of new media and also art, right? He was focused more on uh, the, the potential of, of art to aid in uh, kind of envisioning a world, a beautiful world uh, that exists beyond the, the present but is denied by the existing society, right? And so there's this dialectic wrapped up in that. Uh, and that art has to remain negation in his view, which I'm not sure if I necessarily agree with. He was very critical of, you know, efforts to integrate art into uh, revolutionary or uh, revolutionary social transformation or action, uh, precisely because he thought that alienation was necessary, right? Because it provides this uh, this this aesthetic, not just a vision, right, but this aesthetic experience of what life, if only partial, of what life. Uh, could be, right? but that is not in the present because of the way the you know, world currently operates, but that it could, again, that kind of in, inform, and not just inform, but cultivate a new sensibility, perhaps, uh, that will be crucial in trying to enact some kind of social change. And one thing that I argued, again, more shameless self-promotion, I know I'm guilty of that uh, on this, this podcast, but I wrote a piece for the Partially Examined Life uh, blog a while back where I kind of suggested, you know, in light of new media technologies that allow for these new kinds of creative, uh, that, that allow for a kind of new creative artistic outlet and, um, and kind of break down maybe some of the 
barriers that do separate art from you know, other forms of communication and knowledge production. And I was thinking about what uh, Ron had mentioned with the one professor who's interacting with all these different students virtually and posing these awkward or you know, uncomfortable questions to try to, try to prompt uh, you know, new forms of thought to break down you know, existing uh, frameworks of thinking or rearrange those in a different way that allows us to th see things in a, in a new light. And, and I think that these you know, new media techno new media and communication technologies do perhaps hold the potential that Marcuse was suggesting and, and that could maybe be used to help cultivate this new human sensibility uh, that will you know, uh, become you know, somewhat ingrained and enable us to interact in the world even in a different way that will you know, be part and parcel of transforming it, if that makes sense. Yeah, you know, I also think that those kind of new technologies, those places and opportunities are kind of always the site of what I would call higher learning and the kind of the reconstructive capacities of the culture to find new opportunities for better life, living, insight, ability to respond to problems. Like at any of those sites, what I would call higher learning happens. It's not so much in a particular hard material building as it's an activity that happens around new technologies and insights and ways of engaging with each other. And on that note, uh, I will finish us up for today. Uh, thank you for listening to the New American Baccalaureate podcast. As a reminder, we have a webinar series that's exploring issues facing uh, residential liberal arts colleges um, in crisis because of the pandemic and other systemic situations. Uh, on May 19th, we think a little beyond the current crisis to uh, how we build some of those local anchor partnerships with local communities while thinking globally. Uh, and on June 2nd, we explore even broader degree options towards that end that make liberal arts affordable, inspiring, and career enhancing. If you're interested, please go to the New American Baccalaureate website, newamericanbaccalaureate.org, go to the webinars page and register. Thank you again for listening, and we hope you tune in next week.